Welcome to Capital Conversations, the RLC's podcast from Washington, D.C., where we help Christians imagine a new way to engage in the public square. I'm your host, Jeff Pickering, and you are listening to part two of a special final episode for this season of the show with this current ERLC team. In part one, my ERLC colleagues, Chelsea Patterson-Soblick and Travis Wusso, joined me to reflect on God's faithfulness over our years together working at the Leland House here on Capitol Hill, especially in light of the season of transition that ERLC is now in, as Dr. Russell Moore, our former president, is now moved on to Christianity Today, where he is serving as a public theologian. That leadership transition has brought about transitions throughout the organization, including here on Capitol Conversations. So I want to take you back to a couple of years ago when When I moved over into the host chair of this podcast, joined by Chelsea, Travis, and our then ERLC colleague, Stephen Harris, as we were dreaming up what this podcast might be and how it could serve all of those who ERLC serves, we thought a lot about the purpose of the show being to, quote, foster a new evangelical imagination for political engagement. That's something that Stephen used to say around the office a lot that was motivating to us in our day-to-day work here in the Leland House, and we thought might be motivating for a podcast as well. So then we thought about who might be inspired by that purpose, by that aim for a podcast. We thought about that Christian in ministry who has both Republicans and Democrats in their church, but they're uncomfortable with the excesses of both sides of the partisan divide in America. We thought about people whose pro-life ethic extends for the whole of life, people who long for justice for all, people whose commitment to religious liberty is rooted in the biblical truth of the Imago Day. We thought about Christians who, in the words of Russell Moore, want to engage the culture without losing the gospel. And so each week we work to bring you helpful conversations about the issues of the day from that perspective. And so here, now at the end of this season of the show, as we considered who we wanted to join us as our final guest, David French was at the top of our list. For all those reasons and more, he has been a real hero and signpost of hope uh, as a writer, as a public intellectual, as a lawyer engaged in these issues of the day. And if you listen to part one, you know why already. In that part of the conversation, David reflected on his journey into and out of partisanship as the lens from which he saw his public engagement as a Christian. And his framework for Why things are so crazy right now on so many of these issues was super enlightening and helpful to us. We hope it was to you as well. Now in the rest of our conversation with David, which you will hear now, you'll hear him reflect on the state of religious liberty, the pro-life movement, and January 6th and what it all means for our country. I hope you find the rest of this interview that Chelsea, Travis, and I had with David French as helpful as we did. Enjoy. So, David, I, we, we want to sort of work through some of the some of the issues that we work on here, and, and we want to start with religious liberty. And I want to pick up I want to pick up in with some of your you know some of the comments that you made about sort of the trajectory of religious liberty as as well as the sentiments. I mean, I, I think you're I mean I, I think you're exactly right about the sense of pessimism even among religious liberty professionals and practitioners in Washington, you know, there, there is a palpable 
sense of fear. I mean, there certainly was last summer uh, when Bostock was handed down. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that you are a religious liberty optimist. You've written extensively about this and, and why, uh, why Christians should take heart at the freedoms that have been reaffirmed and, and strengthened uh, in term after term um, after term. Talk to us a little bit about the, the case that we just got this term, Fulton uh, v. Philadelphia. And, you know, if you can, you know, sort of connect that to the trajectory, at least as you see it, uh, in terms of religious liberty law in the United States. Yeah, so um, Fulton v. Philadelphia was the most important religious liberty case of this term. And a lot of people thought it could be sort of a grand slam religious liberty case. Instead, it was like a, a double that you could stretch into a triple if you really hustle. And it was... The original setting of the case is that Catholic social services had been denied participation in the city of Philadelphia's foster care program because Catholic social services did not refer foster kids to same-sex families in accordance with Catholic teaching. And so even though no same-sex family had ever gone to Catholic social services in Philly to be a part of their foster program, I mean, there were a lot of foster agencies in, in Philadelphia, and so people had more than enough options and choices. And originally, the case was taken with the question of, would the court overturn Employment Division v. Smith? That's what I talk about, the Grand Slam. And what that would mean is it would probably revert religious liberty case law back to a default regime of what's called strict scrutiny, where every law that burdens religious freedom has to be justified by compelling governmental interest advanced by least restrictive means. This is a lot of legalese, but it basically means it's really hard to overcome strict scrutiny. Like if the government's going to burden your religious liberty, it's really hard to overcome it, as opposed to the current standard, which says, if I'm confronting a neutral law of general applicability, my religious liberty interest fails. And the court was expected by a lot of people to get rid of Employment Division v. Smith. Instead, it, it decided for Catholic social services, and the court was nine to zero in the result of the case. Pretty amazing. Which shocked people. It was a narrow ruling, relatively narrow, because it said the, the law in Philadelphia wasn't neutral and gem generally applicable because one person had the ability to basically excuse any entity from compliance with the law. So if one person can say, you don't have to comply, that's not a neutral, generally applicable law. And five of the nine justices cast serious doubt on the Smith precedent, but there wasn't a five-vote majority to specifically overturn it. So that means the Smith precedent is on life support, but it still exists. It's what we call, what I like to call zombie precedent. It's sort of still roaming around the countryside moaning, but it is not like alive and well, okay? And this is part of a very long winning streak at the Supreme Court of the United States for religious liberty, mostly by cases that are supermajorities, 9-0, 7-2, that include Democratic nominees in the majority, like in Fulton, uh, like in Masterpiece Cake Shop, for example, that was 7-2. And Hosanna Tabor. Hosanna Tabor, which nine was 9-0. Oh. I mean, so what has ended up happening is that, so you say, okay, well, David, if this is the case, and if you've been winning all these religious liberty cases, why are people so worried? Why are people so alarmed? And I think I, the best way I've been able to describe it is that white Protestants in America have gained liberty and lost power, okay? Gained liberty and lost power. What do I mean by that? So if you're powerful, 
If you have a lot of power in a corporation or in a government or whatever, in a university, you have a freedom of action. You have freedom of action. You experience that freedom of action as liberty, right? You experience, you know, if, if you're the CEO, there is nobody more free in that company than the CEO. But that's power. That's power. That's not liberty. Liberty is what you exercise against power. So a, a nation that protects liberty says, no matter how powerless you are, you still have certain liberties that you can enjoy. Well, the United States has been through this process where a lot of, in particular, white Protestant, the what Ross Douthat has called the white Protestant soft establishment, has lost power steadily for decades. Let's go back about 100 years when the white Protestant establishment was at its apex of power. How do we know apex? It passed prohibition. I mean, prohibition. Like, can you believe that? There was an actual constitutional amendment. Now, this is not something that Catholics wanted. This is not something that Jewish Americans wanted. This, this was white Protestant Christian power at its apex. And, but America did not have much religious liberty. Catholics were subject to these really draconian Blaine amendments that were passing in state after state that were aimed directly at Catholic education and Catholic institutions. We can't even hardly even talk about how little liberty, you know, black Americans had, much less religious liberty that black Americans had. But there was a lot of white Protestant Christian power. And so that has been diminishing and diminishing and diminishing, undeniably so. You know, we've seen cultural, uh, lots of cultural shifts. And so what's happened is we've lost power and gained liberty and haven't liked the exchange. And I think that that's something that we, how we kind of have to look at this, the prism of our religious liberty challenges. So somebody would fairly say, 50 years ago, the city of Philadelphia wouldn't try to cancel Catholic social services. Why? because the Catholic Church had mo so much more power. But the city of Philadelphia can't cancel Catholic social services, at least not right now. Why? Because CSS has liberty. So if that, I hope that all makes sense. No, that's, that's I mean, I, I'm going to be thinking about that paradigm for, have you written on this yet? Uh-huh, but uh, months ago. Well, I, I think you need to dust it off. Um, <laughs> So in, in, uh, let's talk about Smith for a minute, um, and I want to talk about a couple of the cases that the, that the court declined uh, to take up. And I, I want to sort of save, save uh, discussion about Baronel Stutzman's uh, case for just a minute. But, you know, there, there were a couple, of you know, a couple of additional vehicles for overturning Smith, but there, there were a couple of cases that the court declined to take up. David, what, what, do, you think is, uh, what do you think is the timeline for, for Smith? Um, and, you know, maybe you could talk about Justice Barrett's concurrence in, in Fulton, but where, where do you think uh, the court is headed and on what, what timeline on that with respect to overturning or limiting or cabining Smith? I, one way that I put it is after Fulton, as I said, with a shout out to Princess Bride, essentially what the court said was, good night, Employment Division Smith v. Smith, good work, sleep well, I'll most likely kill you in the morning. Um, which is what, you know, the Dread Pirate Roberts said to Wesley. Right. But as we know from The Princess Bride, the Dread Pirate Roberts never killed Wesley until Wesley became the Dread Pirate, and he, Wesley eventually became the Dread Pirate Roberts. So it's an interesting analogy that sort of says Employment Division B. Smith is hanging on by a thread, but the thread may hang there for a while. And the reason is that both Kavanaugh and Barrett 
wrote that while they are very skeptical about Smith, they didn't know what to replace it with. And so what you're going to end up having, I think, is the court looking for a couple of things. One is what case, which case is the right vehicle to really directly challenge Employment Division v. Smith? And it's not going to be a case like Fulton v. Philadelphia, because as I was reading the oral argument, I was thinking, Smith ain't going nowhere. Because why they can win, Catholic charities can win, or Catholic social services can win without overturning Smith. So if the court has a choice between going big and going small, it will tend to go small. Not always, but tend to. So one is, is there a court, a case they will take that presents the proper vehicle? And number two is, will five justices settle on the right framework for replacing Smith? Because I don't think Barrett and Kavanaugh are down for bringing back the pre-Smith strict scrutiny standard in all circumstances. So we may end up with something that's sort of like, not exactly zombie Smith, but like the Black Knight and Holy Monty Python and the Holy Grail, <laughs> where it's like just <laughs> lopped to pieces, but still is somewhat of a living entity, but it just has no real teeth anymore. And so I think Smith... Smith is on borrowed time, but borrowed time can be a while. What, what are your reflections on the court uh, declining to take up uh, Arlene's flowers, to take up uh, Baronel Stutzman's case? Boy, <laughs> can we sum up something very complicated with a, with a short, pithy statement? Brutally unfair, legally complicated. Okay. Yeah. So what's, what's brutally unfair about it? What's brutally unfair about it is that in a halfway decent, tolerant, pluralistic society, this case never happens. Baronel Stutzman's a kind woman who has hired and served gay employees and customers for years, who declined to do a custom floral arrangement for a gay customer that she'd served for 10 years. And she referred him to two other florists who would happily design for him. In a tolerant, pluralistic society, that ends the matter. Like, you know, people go in their own ways. Maybe they disagree with each other, but that's that. In our current society, the Attorney General of Washington didn't just sue her business. He sued her personally and sought damages and attorney's fees against her personally. An effort to essentially ruin her. And so that meant that she had no choice but to sally forth into court and to defend herself. And here's what makes this case complicated. So we have two legal doctrines that are very broadly, there's a, like, I would say, 9-0 consensus on the Supreme Court. One is, going all the way back to a case called Newman v. Piggy Park, that the Supreme Court said it was patently frivolous, that was the phrase, patently frivolous, to say that you had a religious right, a religious free exercise right to decline to serve someone because of their protected status, a business. In this case, it was a barbecue joint. They didn't have a religious liberty right to decline to serve black customers. And that was called patently frivolous. So on the one hand, if you're running a commercial business and someone comes in and it's a public accommodation and someone comes in and they're a member of a protected class, you cannot refuse them service on the basis of their inclusion in that class. And you can't then go running to court and say, my religion allows me to do that and win. So that is about a 9-0 conception. Then there's this other one that is, 
you cannot compel someone to speak and to say things that they disagree with. This goes all the way back to 1943, a case called West Virginia v. Barnett, where at the height of World War II, two Jehovah's Witness young ladies were not saluting and saying an oath to the flag. And the Supreme Court said, there's, if there's any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, may prescribe what is orthodox in law, politics, culture, religion, nationalism, etc. And so, on the one hand, you can't refuse service to somebody in a commercial establishment on the base solely because of their membership in a protected class. On the other hand, the state can't coerce you into expression that you don't want to say. So, the question becomes, what is a custom floral arrangement? Is it a provision of a service, like making a pl ham and eggs? Or is it uh, expression, like painting a mural? You know, for example, no one would say that a painter should be required to paint a mural of the Confederate flag. So what is this? Similarly with a cake. If I'm custom designing a cake, is that a service? Is that a ham and eggs? Is that bacon-wrapped scallops? <laughs> or is that, although bacon-wrapped scallops can be art. Um, <laughs> making me hungry. <laughs> yes. Or is that, or is it art? And so that's where this case was at the intersection. And I think Baronell made the correct argument, which is, look, if you're walking into my store and there's a, an existing floral arrangement and you're picking it up, um, I'll sell you that. But if you want me to participate with you in an artistic manner in celebrating an event that I disagree with, I'm not going to use my specific artistic talents in cooperation with you to celebrate something that I think is wrong. I think that's a very fair line. I think that's the constitutionally correct line. But it's not an easy line to draw. And if you read the oral argument in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, you would know that a lot of it was spent like, well, is this service and is this art? Is this service? And it's on the margins, it's not super easy. So I had this very sinking feeling when the Fulton case was super narrow, and, or not super narrow, but narrow enough, and they didn't overturn Employment Division v. Smith, that I wasn't sure that they were going to take up Baronel Stutzman's case. And sure enough, they didn't. And the real injustice is here's this kind woman who is acting out of conscience, not out of hatred, who has still to this day nothing but kind things to say about the customer that is ended up suing her. She's now going to be on the hook for large financial penalties. Unnecessarily so, by the way. And that's deeply sad. That's deeply sad. So, David, I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about pro-life issues. Um, okay. Another, another uh, you know, tame issue in American yeah. public life. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about kind of where we're headed, including the future of Roe. Uh, but before we talk about the Supreme Court and, and federal policy, I want to talk about kind of the state of pro-life policies. How should we think about states that have passed um, pro-life bills, such as heartbeat bills, things like that? How should, how should we think about that? Yeah, so I am very much, there's this big argument in the um, huge argument in the pro-life community. Are you going to be an abolitionist? Or are you going to be an incrementalist? And my answer is yes. Yeah, we we at the SBC know a little bit about that uh, debate. I hear right a little now. bit. I need Just to write about bit. that, by the way, because that was yeah. that was wild. But anyway, yeah, if 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 we could pass a human life amendment and abolish abortion, 
we should pass a human life amendment and abolish abortion. But you know what we cannot do right now? Pass a human life amendment and abolish abortion. So what should we do while we are also arguing, making that cultural, legal, political argument to abolish abortion? We should do what we can to limit abortion, to restrict abortion, to persuade people not to get abortions. And so pro-life movement is, in my view, pro-life movement should think of itself as dealing with both. Usually it thinks of itself as dealing with the supply side mainly. In other words, hey, uh, we're going to engage in whatever ways that we, what the means that we can to sort of restrict the ability of people to get abortions. But there's also a demand side activism, which says we need to be restricting the desire of people. We need to be persuading people in such a way that they don't have a desire to get an abortion. Now, the interesting thing is the pro-life movement in many ways has been one of the most successful social movements in the U.S. Yeah, there have been lots and lots of laws passed. Many of them have been challenged in court and struck down in court. But if you look at the actual data about abortions, it is remarkable. So the abortion rate peaked about 1980-81. It has gone down in every presidential administration since. Now, we don't have the final numbers from Trump's administration, and some of the early data from Trump's administration is troubling. But from the beginning of the Reagan administration through the end of the Obama administration, the abortion rate went down. Every administration, pro-life, pro-choice, didn't matter, went down. We've also seen hundreds of pro-life laws passed around the country, some of them abolitionist in intent, like a heartbeat bill, which would uh, make uh, abortion very, very rare if they were in force. Some of them more incrementalist, like restrictions on admitting privileges and things like this. But what's fascinating is that there is a cultural reality in America that increasingly frowns on abortion. Regardless of even if somebody wants to defend abortion rights, even people who defend abortion rights, there's a lot of the data that says for they themselves, they don't like abortion. So what does this mean? It means that, for example, more unplanned pregnancies are now carried to term than used to be. That's a sure sign that people are choosing life if it's an unplanned pregnancy and they're carried to term. What else are we seeing? Notre Dame did this really fascinating study where they brought in hundreds of people uh, you know, a demographically accurate cross-section of Americans and, and engaged in long, in-depth conversation about abortion. And here's what they found is they found that about what you'd expect kind of politically, which is a small minor minority want to end abortion entirely, a small minority want to protect abortion right up to the moment of birth, abortion rights right until the moment of birth. Most people land somewhere in between. But here's what was fascinating. Every single participant in the study expressed discomfort with abortion. It didn't matter if they were the most pro-choice person in the survey. They expressed personal discomfort with abortion. And what that tells me is there has been a big culture change, uh, a very big culture change. When I was growing up and when I was in high school, the abortion rate was so much higher. And I had classmates who viewed it as a form of birth control. They just would get abortions as a matter of course. Nowadays, you know, my, my kids, two, my oldest two kids just graduated from high school and it is not viewed the same way by the current generation. It is not. And so there's a, been, there has been a lot of success, but at the same time, you know, if you're a member of the legal pro-life movement, Roe and Casey are still on the books. They're still there and there's still way too many abortions. 
And so, you know, you're making progress, but making progress still means there's hundreds of thousands of abortions per year, even if there's less every year. And so there's always a sense of urgency to the pro-life movement, but there should not be a sense of despair. So, so let's talk about Roe and Casey. Um, you know, the one of the cases the Supreme Court has agreed to hear next term is the Dobbs versus uh, Jackson women's health, um, the Mississippi case. You know, some have speculated that that could be the path to overturning Roe. You know, what what's your take on this? Is that going to be a path to overturning Roe? Is this going to be, you know, referencing what you just said about, you know, a more narrow court decision, you know, what's your, what's your take on that? What is the path to overturning Roe? So I would say I agree with Ed Whalen, who wrote in National Review, that this might be the best, the most ideal vehicle for overturning Roe that the court will hear. Why realistically here? Why is that? Because the law, which bans, it's a Mississippi law banning abortions after 15 weeks, is presently incompatible with the Roe and Casey legal framework. So if you're going to uphold the Mississippi law, you're going to have to do something about Roe and Casey. You're going to have to do something about it. I don't think this court, that four justices of this court, voted to take that case to strike down the Mississippi law and reaffirm Roe v. Casey. I mean, Roe and Casey. I don't think that's what happens. I think that that's the least likely outcome here is that they strike down the Mississippi law and reaffirm Roe, reaffirm Casey, and send the pro-life movement into a tailspin of despair. I don't think that's what's going to happen. So that means there are two main other options. One is they reverse Roe and Casey. They uphold the Mississippi law. They say Roe and Casey were bad law. They're gone. They're over. Abortion now goes back to the states. Now, that does not mean that that would end abortion in the U.S. The best studies say that that means that about close to 90% of abortions would still happen. But even a 10% decrease is still meaningful, right? So I think one one possibility is they reverse Roe and Casey and they send it back to the states. Is that the most likely I'm skeptical, and here's why I'm skeptical. Of the nine justices on the court, we know for sure three, we know for sure three want to uphold Roe and Casey. That's beyond a shadow of a doubt. Of the other six, we only know that one has expressed in his capacity as a judge or a justice opposition to Roe and Casey, flat out as precedents, and that's Clarence Thomas. Gorsuch, Alito, Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Roberts have all been much closer to the vest. Much, all been much closer. So anyone who thinks that there's five justices, five other justices spoiling to overturn Roe, you're hoping that, you're guessing that, you're not knowing that. And so the question would be, and then you also have at least three and maybe more of those six justices, Kavanaugh, Barrett, and Roberts, who are also... They're more certainly more originalist than the three progressive judges, but they also are institutionalists. They're also much more sort of incrementalist so far in their jurisprudence. And so does that mean that one outcome is that the Mississippi law is upheld, but then there's an adjustment to the Roe-Casey framework? And Mississippi actually makes an argument that would permit the court to do that. Mississippi makes an argument that the essentially the ability of the unborn child to feel pain 
creates a state interest in restricting abortion in those circumstances. So would we see another standard, one that's you know tied to the capacity to feel pain? I don't know. I am. I can't wait to see this oral argument. I can't wait to see this oral argument because that will give us some clues, but then we won't know until the case is decided. David, the final issue that we want to talk with you about uh, is, you know, a, a small one, really, compared to these <laughs> other very weighty issues. I kid, of course, because the final issue we want to talk to you about is is uh, really the future of the American Democratic Republic, something that uh, something that you've written a book about. But at the time that your uh, book came out, Divided We Fall, um, I don't think any of us, not even you as the author of that book, could have envisioned the events, riots, and eventual attempted insurrection that would happen uh, here just a few blocks from the Leland House at the uh, at the Capitol on January 6th. So I'll start by just saying, what about January 6th? We're six months from it now. How concerned should we all be as Christians in the United States of America about the future of our democracy uh, in light of what happened here in D.C. on January 6th? I mean, we should be very concerned about that. I mean, I know it's very fashionable in right-wing circles to downplay January 6th to say what happened, that our eyes deceive us, that this was, you know, it wasn't a a violent assault on the Capitol to try to overturn the results of a lawful election. No, 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 no. It was a spontaneous protest. And, you know, what was it? One congressman compared them to tourists. I would urge everyone to read or watch. There's about a 40 minute New York Times video that traces the whole thing in using the cell phone footage and everything. It is sobering. It is sobering. And I was warning about this violence I, you know, in addition to my book saying that we are reaching a very tense place in American life, I was writing before January 6th and warning about violence. Well, and and David, we had you on the podcast to talk about alt-right extremism and terrorism after yeah. the, there were those dual alt-right uh, shootings in uh, El Paso and yeah. maybe Toledo, Ohio. I, I can't remember the exact city in Ohio, but that mm. was, you know, that, that, that's an example of a time that we've had you on this podcast to talk about that kind of violence, but uh, right, but it combined right. on January six with with other threats. Yeah, and so I was saying, look, if you tell people your country is at stake, some people will act like their country's at stake. If you tell people that an election is stolen, some people will act like an election is stolen. And so one of the things that we have, one of the sad things is post January sixth, we have not seen rhetoric slow down. We have not seen rhetoric slow down. And if anything, rhetoric keeps escalating about the state of America. And so people are reacting. You cannot continue to stoke fear and rage and think you can just manage it and it'll be confined to bad tweets and fundraising. Like that's just not the way human beings work. You know, back during the war on terror, we were able to recognize that in the Muslim world, that stoking of extremism would lead to extremism, right? We had enough sense to, and, and, you know, a lot of heroic Muslims made real efforts to try to tamp down on the extremism and the radicalism in the ranks of, you know, in places like Afghanistan and elsewhere and laid their lives on the line because we knew it wasn't just a military challenge facing radicalism in Iraq and Afghanistan and elsewhere. We also knew that there were ideas that were feeding extremism. 
Well, here in the U.S., we have people feeding extremism, just feeding it a sense of catastrophe, of peril. By the grace of God, it's by the grace of God that we've had less violence than some of these other countries around the world. But we have had, if I was going to tell you, things are going to be so bad, like the day after Trump was sworn in, in 2017. You know, in five years, his supporters are going to seize the Capitol to try to stop the peaceful halt of a transition of power in the United States. You would say, pearl clutcher, alarmist, you're crazy, no way. And it happened. Right. It happened. The Capitol is still behind the fence right now. Yeah. As we're talking. And, and here's, the, here's the thing that I would say to folks who identify as being on the right side of the political spectrum, being Republicans, face it. Face it. Don't turn away from it. Because there's a couple of things that I'm seeing right now happening. One is there are people who are like, that. well, the real injustice is the law enforcement response to the rioters or the this was, wasn't really, you know, maybe Antifa was involved or maybe the FBI incited this or the police. And so the, the sort of the deniers who say, you know, the real villains are somebody else. And there's, there's a subset of those people. But there's another larger group of people that when you bring up January 6th around where I live, it's almost, there's this pained look like, I don't want to talk about that. You know, it's sort of like touching a wire that's electrified. Ah, no, let's not talk about that. I don't want to talk about that. But you have to deal with it. You have to deal with the presence of that mindset in your coalition. You have to. Just the way the far left has to deal with the fact that there were violent rioters that were burning stores and looting stores. You know, while people are out there protesting police brutality, they had a subset of violent rioters who are smashing stores and burning buildings. You can't turn away from that. You can't sit there and say, no, I don't want, mm, just ignore, ignore that. That's, you know, but that's what everybody wants to do is this, when rhetoric ratchets up and up and up and up and up, and the natural consequence of people believing words unfolds, then you go, oh, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to talk about it. So people on the right have got to Reasonable people on the right have got to stand up against the conspiracy theorizing. They've got to stand up against all this catastrophic rhetoric and essentially say, you know, look, the A, these extremists are not a part of the movement, and B, extremism itself is a problem and we need to deal with that. And it's hard because the extremists are vocal and vicious. And if you stick your head above the foxhole in any way, shape, or form, then you are going to, people are going to try to chop it off. And it is hard. It is difficult. And that, that sort of psychological warfare has even leaked into family relationships. I know people who lost relationships with their parents, with their parents, because they disagreed with what happened on January 6th. That's wild. And, and that's the kind of dynamic we're dealing with. I completely agree with that, David. I, and I, I just want to uh, commend another resource that the Dispatch has, has put out, uh, Chris Dyerwalt's excellent short-run podcast series. It is so good. Um, and I think, you know, one, one of the things, you know, to your, your comments about, you know, how we on the right have, have, to, have to reckon with what's contained within our, our movement and, you know, be thinking about how the kinds of arguments that we were, were making can further polarize people. But I, th I thought I thought uh, Chris's interview with, with uh, John Podhoritz was 
was excellent for for really thinking about you know in in some ways the you know the etymology of of these ideas you know uh, of you know what uh, Hofstadter called the you know the paranoid style um, and and how long you know the this sort of strain of of conspiracy conspiratorial thinking um, has has existed on the right and so you know I, I just I'm, I want to I want to commend that podcast series because I think it helped it it helped me to connect things that I didn't see as connected. You know, I think one of the things that is so good about that that podcast, that episode, is that you begin to see when you understand in particular, because it focuses on the evolution of conservative media. When you see the evolution of conservative media, the present culture seems a lot less surprising and a lot more inevitable. And it was a media that you know, originally there was a, a lot of there were a lot of ideas to, that would be along the lines of, we want to create the conservative answer to ABC News, we want to create the conservative answer to the New York Times or the Atlantic, and with some small isolated examples, that didn't pan out. That's not the way conservative media evolved, and it evolved at more and more and more towards. Outrage and grievance, outrage and grievance. Essentially, you know, with all due apologies to the Fox News watchers who are listening, that's Fox's business model is outrage and grievance. That's talk radio's business model, outrage and grievance. And you know what? When you cater to outrage and grievance, you know what you get a lot more of? Outrage and grievance. And part of it is a chicken and egg problem. You know, there's that old statement from local news if it bleeds, it leads. Well, it bleeds, it leads, because that's where the eyeballs are. But then it creates a more, you know, so outrage and grievance, there are eyeballs for outrage and grievance. But then when you feed that beast, it's self-perpetuating. But if there's any good news here, there's an increasing number of people who are tired of it all, quite frankly. They're tired of it. So how, how do we respond to those kinds of deflections and trivializations of January 6th with people who we do still have relationship with and we are still talking to, and, and maybe they're not as steeped in the lies and the conspiracies that so many on the right are telling, whether they're in politics right now or they're in the conservative media entertainment spectrum. How do we respond to those people who just are now six months later going, it wasn't an insurrection. Come on. I mean, so as Christians, we're to be people of truth. And yeah. for the people who, you know, are tired of a lot of this, like what is the bridge to a better way? Okay. So I have an asking telling distinction that I make in these conversations. So if somebody is asking me what I think of January 6th, then that is a not it's not a certainty, but it's a tell that they might actually be curious. Okay? That they might actually be, you know, dissatisfied with whatever explanation that they've heard or open to discussion what, about what occurred. And a lot of that I would just sort of depending on sort of how sophisticated the person is in following politics or, you know, not how sophisticated the person is, but how closely they follow politics, you either go back and walk them through or you sort of start the story midway. <laughs> but I think the I look at a question as an invitation. You know, if, if someone is asking me about January 6th, let's have this conversation and let's do it calmly and let's do it as kindly as we can empathetically and and also sort of giving people perspective that if how would you feel ask someone what would your thought process be right now if antifa stormed the capitol to try to hand the election to joe biden when donald trump won 
would you think that was not that big a deal? And no right winger I've ever met in my life would think, ah, just a few people got out of hand. Nobody would think that. But the the asking telling distinction is very important. If they're asking me, let's talk. If they're telling me, it's a different thing. They're deep. They tend to be deep in a hole. <laughs> and a lot of that is I will try to not have the conversation if they're telling me. Because this is not something where you're going to fact check somebody out of it. This is not something where there are deeper issues. And when somebody is deep into conspiracy, the answer to someone deep into conspiracy is not a fact check. The answer to someone who's deep in conspiracy is a relationship. Because one of the things that we neglect is the extent to which folks who are deep into this, this is their community, this is their tribe, this is their purpose. When you're talking about something that deep, some 900-word fact check about Pennsylvania ballots is not going to dent that construct at all. You have to replace something bad with something good. And so, you know, this is one thing that I, I talk to. I get so much correspondence from people who are worried about their parents or worried about a sibling who are deep, deep into this. And one of the first things I say is you can't fact check out of it. But, you know, you, what you can have is a relationship and an alternative community that they can migrate to. And I think that that's the important, that's the important distinction. Are you creating a welcoming space of an alternative community of loving, gracious Christians that can receive into it and embrace people who are migrating out of the paranoia and the fear of the world of conspiracy with full knowledge that that paranoia and that fear is also giving them a community and a purpose. So you can't replace purpose with purposelessness. You can't replace community with isolation. You replace community with community. You replace purpose with purpose. And that's what we really have to think hard about. Dr. Moore always made the connection of people leaving the LGBT community as, you know, welcoming those those folks into our churches almost as refugees. And I, I feel like you were drawing the same uh, distinctions as almost these refugees coming out of that community and welcoming them into a, a different community. So I really appreciate that. Um, so as we are wrapping up this conversation, which has just been such an excellent conversation. Um, I want to ask you, again, a very simple question of <laughs> what gives you hope for the future of Christian political engagement? You know, we've had, we've touched on a, many different issues um, wrapping up with, with January 6th, which can feel hopeless. Um, but but where, do you, where do you see hope? So let's, let's draw a distinction. This might not be valid. You might have some theologians listening who go, French, this is not right. But I draw a distinction between optimism, where I say, it's probably all going to be okay, versus kind of hope, which says it could be okay. <laughs> like, I'm not foreclosing the possibility that it could be okay. I am not optimistic in the short term, particularly about American Christian engagement in politics. I do think there were some very positive things that happened in the SBC in Nashville, I do think there were there was a there were a lot of powerful voices that raised their themselves to say we need to be identified as great commission Christians, not first and foremost as Republicans, members of Tribe Red or Tribe Blue. There's some very powerful voices, and those voices need to need to be heard, and they need to you know need to maintain that courage because it takes courage to say that. 
But right now, every indication is that the church is being caught up in the same partisan dynamics that are ripping apart our culture. Find me the denomination that isn't deeply divided on ideological lines right now. Um, more so than theological lines, because one of the things that was sort of you know frustrating about the way some people phrased disputes in the um, Southern Baptist Convention was, you know, conservatives versus moderates. Weren't many moderates in the room, <laughs> you know, like from what people in the world would sort of describe as moderates. So you have a lot of disagreement amongst Christians who agree among on core biblical doctrines. But the larger polarizing forces of the culture are ripping apart the body of Christ. Masks or no masks, vaccines or no vaccines, Trump or no Trump, insurrection or no insurrection. You know, so these are kinds of things that are ripping and tearing at the body of Christ. And, and what I submit is that they will keep ripping us to shreds unless Christians can increasingly abandon don't take, th listen closely to these words, increasingly abandon the partisan mind. Okay, that doesn't mean that you abandon belonging to a political party, or it doesn't mean you abandon voting for someone in a political party, or that you even abandon running for office. It means that the partisan mind is a mind that defines itself in a partisan way, that locates its identity in a partisan, in a partisan context. And one of the great tragedies, I think, of our time as an evangelical church is that right now the social science data says, in the words of Ryan Burge, who's a leading researcher of, of religious trends in the United States, white evangelicals are Republicans, Republicans are white evangelicals. And that between white evangelicals, white evangelicals are more closely tied to their political party than any other ideologically, ideologically than any other religious subgroup in the United States of America. That should sober us. Why? Not because I'm saying be a Democrat, but because I'm saying I don't think the Republican National Convention or the Republican platform is divinely inspired. I don't think that there's a monopoly in truth in that party. And if you are that closely identified, how are you holding them accountable? rather than being their defense lawyer all the time, rather than defending them constantly and always. And so what I, what I say is Christians should participate, yes, in the political process, but never forget that their fundamental identity isn't anywhere in the neighborhood of their political party. Their fundamental identity is found in Jesus Christ, and that therefore you should fearlessly hold any political party to account or any political leader to account when they engage in conduct that is corrupt or unjust. Instead, what we will do is because we locate too much of ourselves in our partisanship, we're very good at holding opposing politicians accountable for their corruption and injustice. And we're very bad at holding our own allies accountable for corruption and injustice. Because why? Because we don't want to give ammunition to the other side. And so long as we're in, in locked in that mindset, we are not going to be salt and light in this world. We're just going to be part of it, just going to be part of it. And we're going to maybe even be the worst part of it because we're going to soak our partisanship in religion. And there's a bad track record for that, y'all. That's a bad, <laughs> there's a bad track record. And so if we can understand our fun to a heart level, not just a head level, a heart level that we are 
believers in Jesus first, and we seek justice first more than we seek the triumph of our politicians or our tribe, we're going to continue to be part of the problem and not part of the solution. Well, David, that right there is why you were on the top of our list for a final guest uh, for this iteration of the Capital Conversations podcast here at ERLC, because I think what you what you laid out there the 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 charge, uh, the encouragement that is this new imagination for Christian Public Square engagement that we hope that this podcast over the last many years has helped people get out of that partisan mind. Uh, and think about what it means to act justly, to walk humbly, and to love mercy as a citizen of this country, as a citizen of your state, as a citizen and as a neighbor in your community, recognizing that we are citizens of Christ's kingdom first and foremost. And this is, you know, the the theme of Dr. Moore's Onward, and it, it has been the theme of our work here in D.C., that we can actually be Americans best when we're not Americans first. And that's also true for politics. And I think the the best voices, both in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party here, are those who see themselves not as Democrats or Republicans first and foremost, but trying to be statesmen and stateswomen in this political process. And the same needs to be true for Christians to be members of Christ's kingdom first and foremost. And David, I think you're, I mean, you're, you're writing, you're speaking, you're podcasting, uh, does that to all of us. It's such an encouragement and uh, thank you for for joining us on this on this extended and and somewhat special episode of ERLC's Capital Conversations. We appreciate you and your work and friendship so very much. Well, it's been an honor. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington D.C. And for at least one more time, I'm your host Jeff Pickering. Be sure to stay subscribed to Capital Conversations as there will surely and soon be something new on this channel. And while you're there in your podcast library, check out the ERLC podcast. It's another show from our organization with new episodes from Nashville released every Friday. So here as this is our final time to talk with one another, I'd just like to say a word of gratitude. Thank you so much for joining us each and every week. The journey we've been on together on this podcast has truly been the highest honor yet of my career. This work in DC was tiresome and yet to have been in the trenches with the ERLC and with all of you during these confusing and too often chaotic times has been a joy. My ERLC teammates are colleagues who became my friends and then truly my brothers and sisters, both in Christ and adopted for life in Russell Moore's tree. In all the work we've done together, I've learned that faithfulness to Jesus, walking in the good works God has prepared, is its own means and end. And though there is still much cultural and political work to do, Christ's resurrection is the good news that reminds us that everything is, in the end, going to be all right. And so, this is where I'll leave you, with the prophetic words of Micah 6.8, text of scripture that we actually have here in a print hanging on the Leland House studio wall. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. On behalf of all of us at the ERLC in Washington, thanks for listening.